Well, amen. Good morning, Harvest. If I haven't met you, my name is Jamie. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor and elder here at Harvest Church and the joy of leading us into our time in God's Word as we continue in our uh, series in 1 Peter uh, this morning, being in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And if you're able, I would invite you to go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's 1 Peter three thirteen through 17. It's the word of God for the people of God and God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do acknowledge uh, this morning together corporately that the Bible's from you. Uh, you wrote it, you spoke it, you breathed it into existence uh, through human authors and thus superintended us having exactly what you willed. It being from you, it makes it authoritative, life-giving, truthful. And so we ask during this time that you would move us by your spirit through your word, uh, that your word, the promises of it, the power of it uh, would come home to us here. In this time that we would leave uh, more shaped and conformed into the image of your son. And we ask this in Christ's wonderful name we pray. Amen. I did want to echo a little bit of what Seth said earlier uh, in the call to worship and the announcements about this uh, new lunch, uh, lunchtime prayer. Time that we'll be having uh, at the chapel here at Harvest and, and exhort you uh, towards coming. Uh, it's not going to be a slick program. It's not going to have a huge agenda. It's, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a time of prayer, which means we're going to come and pray. That's it. It'll be led or facilitated by an elder. We may have scriptures we go through. We may have topics or, or people we're interceding for. It may take some different forms along the way, but it is going to be, uh, God willing, pure and simple God's people gathering to pray. For we trust, as the scripture says, that God hears us and the prayers of his people are effective. Amen? Now, I was thinking this week, this will kind of be a slow ramp up into our text today. I was thinking this week, way back to when God was gracious enough to save me. So 16 years old, on a mission trip, I know many of you have heard the story, uh, so forgive me the repetition, but a mission trip, went to Venezuela. Uh, I went because I, not being a Christian, had some Christian friends who told me about support raising, thought it was brilliant. It was a free vacation as far as I was concerned. And in Venezuela, uh, God very, very clearly revealed the gospel of Jesus Christ to me. Uh, with great uh, acute awareness, uh, I saw my sin, my depravity, uh, my inability to, on my own, do anything about that. And in one moment, 
in a powerful movement of God's spirit, the scales fell off my eyes by his grace alone and was empowered to believe. And I was thinking about that some, what, 22 years later now, and I was wondering this week, what did I have in mind that it meant to live the Christian life back then? If you would have asked 16-year-old me, I don't know what I would have answered. You're a Christian now. What do you think that means for you, for the future, for the defining characteristics of living? I'd ask that to you this morning too. What did you have in mind when God graciously, redemptively, powerfully saved you? Four, growing up in Auburn, Alabama, I'm sure I had some semblance of, okay, I need to to have a more moral life, and that's true, not because it earns God's love, but because it puts on display that God has thus loved me. So yes, I probably had in mind some sort of future vision of family and life that, that came with some comfort, maybe some, some trouble along the way, some tragedy. It's hard to escape that in this life, but hopefully a wife and kids and how you know, frequent attendance at Auburn football games, all the important things a young man longs for. But what did you have in mind when Jesus saved you? Because I'll tell you what I didn't have in mind. I didn't have in mind a lot of what Peter's been writing to us about. I did not have in mind about half thematically considered of the New Testament content about what it meant to be a follower of Christ. I had in mind what is often presented as a gospel presentation that come to Jesus and you'll never be happier. That was probably in there somewhere. And come to Jesus and all your troubles will go away. Well, I will tell you, experientially, I found that to be categorically false. All my troubles haven't gone away. You should have seen us trying to drop our kids off in their classrooms earlier. (laughs) 22 years of walking with the Lord has not been absent of tragedy and trial. I've only gone through depressions after coming to know Jesus. So when I'm reflecting on the Christian life, and maybe as you do too, I wonder if these passages ever crossed my mind or yours. And I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I say these things to you. In me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I say to you, pray for those who persecute you. If the world hated me, they will also hate you. Any of those passages come to mind when we first came to Christ? When we thought through this vision of what it meant to walk with Jesus, it didn't occur to me then 
what's occurring to me now. And Peter has been systematically walking us through the reality that if we walk with Jesus, there are some things that are guaranteed to happen. And none of them have been good health. None of them have been financial prosperity. None of them have been social acceptance. Time after time after time, he is bringing to our attention unjust suffering, slander, persecution for righteousness' sake. These are guaranteed components of Christian living. In fact, last week, Kenan bring us into this section, verse 8 pivots, right? So we go through how to interact in employment, how to interact uh, as husbands, how to interact as wives, and then shifts in verse 8, finally, all of you. So now turning our attention back to this corporate idea of the church existing in the world. And as uh, many of us growing up in the South, uh, maybe the deep South, of Memphis or elsewhere, we have culturally in some ways been insulated from these realities of the church in the world because it has been fairly socially accepted for a long time to be a churchgoer, to be a Christian, to proclaim the name of Jesus. And yet most of us now are tasting that is not so anymore. Things are not now culturally considered, even in the South, what they once were. And so in God's providential timing, I think he's had this book of 1 Peter for us. And I think Peter is trying to get us over and over and over again to do a recalibration of our expectations of not just what it means to be a Christian existing in the world, but then in verse 15, which we'll get to, how to not just clam up and wall ourselves off and, and be some insulated side-off sect, but how to engage biblically. How to move from this place and live out there in the world, in our neighborhoods and workplaces and amidst our family members that don't believe, but to have true pure, real, powerful gospel engagement, not according to the plans of man and the strategies of humankind, but according to the biblical imperatives. And so if you find yourself ever wondering, man, is it supposed to be like this? Is it supposed to be difficult to follow Jesus in the world? Yes. Are we supposed to engage altogether differently than all these strategies we see out there? Yes. Well, how do we do it? We answer that this morning. So the points are very simple. The reality of unjust suffering, we won't talk about that much because we've already talked about it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And principles for Christian engagement. That's it. The reality of unjust suffering and principles of Christian 
engagement. Look at verse 13 with me. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now, we may answer that as Peter's asking and saying, Peter, a lot of people. Some of you already are feeling the tension of your employment because of what you believe. There are a lot of people that could harm me, Peter. What do you mean by that? Imagine to the group that's writing to, that he's writing to here. Who is there to harm you? A lot of them probably would say, uh, Peter, Nero. Nero can harm me. The Roman government can harm me, Peter. They can do things to me. And the things they can do are scary. So what do you mean? Who is there to harm me? Well, verse 13 only makes sense if Peter is asking it in an ultimate sense. He's saying, if you belong to Jesus, or if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone, in his death and his burial of resurrection, if you have cried out, save me, I can't save myself, you belong to Christ, here's what Peter's saying. Yes, people can do some things to you in this life, and those are real, and they're hard. But he says, ultimately, no one can touch you. Not ultimately. It's what Paul would write at the end of Romans chapter 8. If God is for you, who can be against you? You'd say, well, a lot of people are against us, but not ultimately. For their day, there is a day coming that they cannot touch. Amen? And that day is everlasting. That day is enduring. Who is there that can ultimately harm you? No one. No one. That's the answer to 13. And because that's true, here's what he says. You may suffer, to rearrange it, you may suffer for righteousness' sake. Just know it. But that suffering, be encouraged, it's not ultimate. And not only that, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, the text actually says you will be blessed. Now hold on. That one's going to have to be explained to me. That somehow by trying to walk with the Lord, so when he says for righteousness' sake, that's his way of phrasing that you are walking with Christ, obeying Christ putting on display the the moral implications of what it means to be a Christian, the the joy implications, the faith implications, all of those things, as costly as they may be, he's calling that righteousness sake. So doing those things, says, yes, hey, walk with the Lord. You may suffer for doing that, and it is a blessing. Well, how? Because it doesn't feel like a blessing. Social rejection doesn't feel like a blessing. Having implications on your employment doesn't feel like a blessing. Being at odds with family doesn't feel like a blessing. Having the neighbors look at you weird because you just parent a little bit differently than they do doesn't always feel like a blessing. And for those who have suffered far worse than any of these contemporary, you know, Memphis considerations probably didn't feel like a blessing in the moment. 
Okay, there's only one way, I think, to understand what he means by that. Okay, because I really believe Peter is operating on all that he's heard Jesus teach. And if you were, and don't go back there, you can just make a note. If you were to go back to Matthew chapter 5, you're going to find ultimately the exact same phrasing. Not coming from Peter, but coming from Christ. So if you remember in Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of it, it's called the Beatitudes. Some of you may be familiar. It's fine if you're not. It introduces this big sermon that Jesus gives, Sermon on the Mount. And in that, he says something in 5 chapter 10. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted. Okay, so there we see it. Peter ties persecution and blessing. Jesus ties persecution and blessing. Now, Peter doesn't give us the explanation. Jesus does. So in what way is persecution a blessing? Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so how do we bring that together? Here's what Jesus is saying. If you suffer and are persecuted for actually walking with Christ, not for doing what's wrong, the Bible says there's no credit to that, but for genuinely walking with Jesus, if that costs you something, Jesus says, you want to know why that's a blessing? Because that is tangible proof that you are already living in a different kingdom. Because nobody will just willfully and voluntarily bring suffering into their life, especially not for doing what they think is right. Jesus says, you want to taste the kingdom that is enduring? You want to be encouraged that your home is not this world? 1 Peter chapter 1 we live as exiles. See, if you want to know that you know, that you know, that you are deeply in love with the Lord Jesus, it says, suffer for following him. Endure the persecution that comes with holding fast to his name. Do that, and here's what Jesus is saying. You're already tasting kingdom living. It says, blessed are you, for the kingdom of God is yours. Okay, now, which is uh, true so many of the times, the inverse of that is also true. Profess the name of Christ, but live like this world is your kingdom, you will never know the blessing that Jesus is talking about right here. You will only know a schizophrenic spirituality where you never even know if you actually love the Lord Jesus or not. Blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Why? Because you are already tasting the kingdom of God. Live for this world and this kingdom And it is all going to be taken away. Live for a different kingdom. And he says, you will be blessed. I was listening to a a pastor this week. And he posed a question. I never thought about this. 
and it was a fun little exercise. It's actually a great a little uh, a pragmatic discipleship question, right? So as you're pouring into others and hoping that they then pour into others and pour into others and pour into others, right? We want to be a gospel-driven, disciple-making church. This is a very provocative question. He said, in what, uh, uh, if you were to take Paul's uh, 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 verse where he says that to live is Christ and to die is gain, if you were just to take that sentence, but take out Christ and draw a blank and ask someone, you know, uh, to live is blank and to die is gain. Is there anything else you can write in there that remotely makes sense? To live is promotion and to die is gain. Well, death is not gain in that sake because you just lost your promotion because it doesn't go with you. To live is a bigger house and die is gain. But it's not because you lose it. To live is, you know, my child's budding athletic ability. And to die is gain. Well, it's not. But if we live like it is, then it just shows the kingdom of this world is too much with us. The only thing that makes sense, the only thing we get more of when we die is Christ. For the scripture says we behold him now, right? Still slightly veiled and one day we will see him in all of his splendor. The only thing that makes sense in death is Christ. It's the only way that verse is gain. So blessed are you who suffer for righteousness sake. How? Because you're tasting the kingdom and the kingdom is yours forevermore. And then he says this, because that's true, don't be afraid. Have no fear. Now, my uh, translation says of them, if you've got NIV, uh, NAS, oh, uh, that, that's going to read a little bit differently. The main point is don't be afraid of those who can persecute you. We don't have fear of them. And the idea there when it goes further and says don't be troubled, uh, the original language there as far as trouble is considered is caused mental distress. So when you put it together, Peter's saying, look, you can't be panicked, so distraught, so anxious, so riddled with fear about what's going to happen to us in this life because we're walking with Jesus. So you can't be afraid of those things. In fact, he's saying, don't be. It's an imperative. Don't be afraid of them. Why? Verse 13, they can't ultimately harm you. Is he saying that it won't be difficult? No, it will be difficult. He's saying, don't be afraid. Don't let what may happen to us as Christ followers get us so shaken that we can never step into what he's about to say in verse 15. He's saying, don't let it cause you all this 
mental distress, this anxiety, this, this fear-ridden faith where we never do anything because we're afraid it's going to cost us something. It is. It's promised. So he says, have no fear of them. And in response, here's what he says. Verse 15, in your heart. So what's the solution as it were? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Some of yours may say set Christ apart as holy. That's the idea of holiness in scripture. It's a distinction, it's a setting apart. Peter, okay, I don't wanna be afraid. I am, but I don't wanna be. He says, well, let me tell you what you gotta do. You've got to set Christ apart as distinctively Lord, which means you give him control of everything. And why does he say in your heart? Because in the Greek mindset and uh, 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 in, in the Jewish mindset, when you bring the heart together, it is the origin of all human action, all thought. So you've got to set Christ apart as Lord in your heart. Why? So that he controls every single thing that flows out of us. That's his point there. When he's controlling all that comes out of us, guess what he's also in control of? The very fear he's just exhorted us against. Okay, so if we are fearing other things and it's controlling our action, then Peter's saying you've actually set that apart as Lord. The controlling entity of our life is what we have set apart as the determiner and originator of our actions. Peter says, that should only be Christ and Christ alone. Okay, Paul would write to the church in Ephesus that his desire, it's a prayer. He's praying this for the church. He says that my prayer is that Christ would dwell in you, you may remember that scripture from your readings. He would richly dwell in you. What doesn't come across in the English there is Paul could have picked two words to talk about that dwelling and it directly ties to our text this morning. So Peter's saying set Christ apart as Lord, which means he's in control, which means he's the originator of all things that we're supposed to do and we're supposed to say, all of it then Paul says, yes, and that happens only by him dwelling deeply and richly in you. But two things were possible to Paul. There's a word we, we won't have to say them. We'll just go with what they mean. The first word he could have picked for dwelling meant to rent a room. The second word he could have picked for dwelling was to own, uh, 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 own the home. And what Paul says, when you are redeemed, and Christ saves you. He owns the home. He is not just trying to rent a room in your life. So if you imagine and carry the analogy through that your life or my life is a house. He doesn't get, you know, the bedroom, the den, but you're gonna keep that closet or your office. No, no, he's not renting from you. And he's not renting from me. 
He owns the home. If he is Lord, he owns it. All of it. It's a good time for us uh, uh, who have been saved by Christ, by his grace, to ask the Spirit to search us. Say, hey, look, God, with great clarity, show me. Are there parts of my life that I think I don't have to rent out to you? Am I willing to give over some things to you? Like there's this transactional real estate relationship. I get some, you get some. I hold on to some equity, you get some equity. He's not renting. He's not signing lease agreements with stipulations with us. He owns us. So Peter says, get him in his rightful place as Lord. That if your life is a house, he holds the deed, he holds the mortgage, he holds the first lien, the second lien, he holds every line of credit, he holds it all. And when we do that, when we honor Christ as Lord, now everything's changing. And when we move out into the world, the way we look at money is different. The way we parent is different. The way husbands treat wives and wives treat husbands. Uh, The way we file our taxes. The way we interact at athletic events. All of these things start to change. And when those start changing, the rest of verse 15 is what happens. Honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who ask a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The only people that get asked those questions are those who have honored Christ as Lord. That's Paul's point. When we look so much like the world that no questions need to be asked, it's problematic. So when, when, when the world spins into chaos and the Christian has peace, that's odd. What's going on there? When the world is accumulating possession and possession and possession, and you mean to tell me you just give your money to a church, to a people? Is there, you know, return on investment on that? Is there, wait, you just give it away? That's weird. When you say no to things that personally benefit you so you can say yes to sacrificing yourself for the sake of someone else, that's a cultural oddity. Peter says, you set them apart as Lord. People are gonna be a bit inquisitive. And when they are, now we get this biblical prescription for Christian engagement. I'm going to give it to you quickly. Then we'll be finished up. I tried my best. I know some of you have Baptist roots. And in honor of that, I put every ounce of my Auburn education to work this week. And I have four words and they all start with P. All right. So here they are. 
Now, this is our guidelines of Christian engagement because, look, and I, I realize this may be frustrating for some what I'm about to say, but I just want to state what's true in 2021. The ways we've been trying to go about this engaging the world deal in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, it didn't work. It didn't work. The culture wars didn't work. The marrying our faith with politics didn't work. Right now, the church is left as being viewed as an arrogant, inconsequential, unloving segment of our society. So we got to engage a little bit differently. Because we want to see the kingdom of God permeate the kingdom of the world. Amen? So we want that the Spirit of God would move in power. That people would come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Okay, so here's, here's, here's Peter's approach. The first is this. It's position. It's position. We want to engage faithfully as Christians positionally what he's already said. Set Christ apart and put him where he belongs. Lord of all. That's a positional statement. Then he has what is a proclamation. Give him an answer. Say something. Articulate the hope you have. Articulate why we live differently now because we're headed somewhere else later. Amen? Articulate it. Tell them. Of course I give my money away. It's not going with me. I'm going to a kingdom with the Son of God. It's inconsequential to me. I'll give more. Proclaim it. There's a position. There's a proclamation. But then there's a posture with gentleness and respect. Gentleness. Peter doesn't say, arm yourselves and get out there and just fight them. He says, you honor Christ as Lord. You proclaim it. Don't shrink back. Don't tuck tail and run. Don't let fear get the best of you. Position, proclamation, posture, gentleness and respect. Over and over and over again. And then the last one, place. He was apparently, they were doing it out there. If you're not around non-Christians, then guess what? Now I learned this because I got two degrees. I'm working on the third. And I learned some really in, uh, uh, ingenious things. That if I'm not around non-Christians, non-Christians can never ask me questions. Now that's profound, but true. Get out there and put it on display. That's place. Engage somewhere. Street, marketplace, family, athletic events, whatever the arenas of our lives are. So we got a position. Christ is Lord. That's our position. 
We've got a proclamation. Hey, we've got hope when it might not make sense to have any. And we got a posture of gentleness and respect, and we've got a place, which means we're going to get out there and get it going. Last thing I'll tell you this morning. Look, verse 16, uh, 17, you can just write, it's the promise, the promise of slander and the freedom of a clear conscience. That's it. The promise of slander and the freedom of a clear conscience of when they slander you, of it not being true. That's freedom. But if you feel beat down a little bit like, oh man, I have not been putting that on display. If someone that I've known for years, if you were to really ask them, I don't know if they would even know that I really think Christ is Lord. I don't live like Christ is Lord. I live like money is Lord or like my kids are, my spouse or whatever it is. If you had a little encouragement this morning, remember who's writing these words to us. Because I bet when Peter was writing this, there were some flashbacks to a fear-saturated man in a courtyard that he was directly asked about his relationship with Jesus. And every time he said, don't know him, don't know him, I don't know him. And he hung his head in shame. Here he is saying, don't let the fear of them control you. I know because the fear of them controlled me. Be ready to answer their questions. I know because I refuse to answer their questions. How does he go from the courtyard to this content? Peter also remembers there was a day when Jesus cooked him breakfast on a beach. and said, come here, Peter. Do you love me, Lord? You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? Three questions from Jesus because of three unanswered questions by Peter. Hey, Peter, you blew it. Hey, Peter, you're mine. Go love my people. Get back at it. And those same gracious arms are extended to all of us this morning. You've probably shrunk back in the past, maybe more than three times. I certainly have. Well, come on back to the Christ who cooks breakfast on the beach and says, you're forgiven. Let's get back at it. Amen? Father, we're grateful. We ask this week, starting right now, this week, we want to engage. We want our position to be Christ is Lord. We want our proclamation to be clear and known. We want our posture to be gentleness and respect. And we want to do it in every place you would send us. Christ, you are Lord. And when we were despairing without hope and without God in this world, by nature, children of wrath, you and your great mercy, you saved us. And us, by repentance and faith and trusting in the finished work of Christ and Christ crucified, you made us your own. We ask this week for the opportunity to put you on display to the world.
come what may, we will not fear. It's in Christ's precious name I pray. Amen.